If you don't happen to have um, your Bible with you or a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll bring one for you so you can follow along. Let's pray together. Father, I recognize probably even more freshly than than usual, I recognize the great dependency there is upon you for this time to be eternally meaningful. That, dear God, we are in need of your Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of the Word, to accomplish your good purpose in the life of your sons and your daughters. So, Father, I, I just plead with you. I ask of you, please, for your name's sake, Father, would your spirit deeply touch us with the truth of this passage. Grant us, Lord God, a fresh vision of the resurrected Christ. Him whose name we have taken as Christian, him who... We desire to serve and follow as master. Lord, I pray that you would truly be with us in this time. Father, accomplish your good word, your good purpose by your word. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most amazing facets of Christianity to me, personally, and I saw this as we walked through the Gospel of Luke together um, a few years ago, is the, the fact that we serve a God who is a personal God, a God who deals with us, comes to us, loves us personally, not just some mob of people, not just a mass of people. Now, by all means, when we're born again, we are added to the church, and I'm not belittling that in any way, but each one of us comes to Christ individually. Each one of us is added to the church individually. Each one of us is loved individually by our Father. And so this morning, I want to look at our Lord's pursuit of Thomas. And it's interesting to me because it's a post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus there with Thomas. Um, Over the years, I've preached a message on the actual resurrection text. This morning, I'm going to take just a little different Uh, lane and see the resurrected Christ in his glory, zone in on one man. And that that reality alone is just, I think it's lost on us at some times, or maybe not lost, but just at times we, we get so used to it, it becomes so common when we say the term, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But beloved, stop for a second and just ponder that. Dan Mason, little old, you know, nobody Dan Mason, has a, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He knows me, knows everything about me, knows the hairs of my head, which is, yeah, it's getting easier for him. <laughs> As I get to know my God, and my God knows everything about me, he knows me better than any human being in this room, he knows me better than me. That personal aspect of, the, of our 
of our faith, of Christianity, the fact that our God does not just have a pile of subjects whose name he doesn't know, but individually knows everything about you with utter precision, is astounding to me. The day I got saved, prayed the prayer, holding my mom's hand, coming to Christ, God's there. He's in the midst of that. God is is beside me, calling me unto himself by his precious spirit, by his word. Personally, Dan Mason, born again, afresh, brought into the kingdom. Not just, hey, there's a bus, and if you get on the bus, then you'll be my people. No, no, it comes to us individually. And I think this is a beautiful picture of that as he pursues Thomas. So if you would, look with me, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So there's been an appearance of the Lord Jesus. If you look just ahead at verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, any uh, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You all familiar with the title this guy has throughout history? We call him Doubting Thomas. Can I encourage you to drop that? Because I think that it is a massive mistake to mark him out as different. Did you notice what the disciples all saw in just the chunk of text that I just read before we come to this passage? They all saw his wounds. They all believed. Thomas isn't there. They come to Thomas and they told him what happened. And he says, unless I see it, I can't believe. I won't believe. And we all look at Thomas like, man, what a doubter. Well, the disciples just saw what he said he wanted to see. So apparently we have the doubting disciples, not the doubting Thomas. Now let me add to more to that. I also think it's a danger when we single him out as Doubting Thomas because then we make it almost seem as if they're people who are more apt to believe than others. Can I remind you that all men and women are dead in sins and trespasses? No man seeks after God. So when we start throwing Thomas that title, I think we've made a massive mistake. So you know what I'm going to start calling him? Ready? Thomas. Because... His doubt is the doubt of the disciples. His doubt's our doubt at times. There's a struggle in people. We struggle with that, which is why faith is so profound and simply amazing when we see somebody with true saving. 
faith. More to that in just a bit. So here's Thomas. Thomas has a doubt. Now, I have no doubt in my mind, beloved, that Thomas doubted out of grief. Okay? Think about what this man just saw. This man has been following a master, listening to him teach, seeing him do um, just marvelous miracles and doing some incredible things, teaching with authority that he's never heard before, (sighs) bringing somebody from the dead. Of course I'll put all my chips in and follow this man. And then hour after hour after hour, Thomas watches him tortured, beaten, laughed at, scorned, slapped, mocked. Eventually, they start putting metal through his body. He's pierced to a tree. He's put up naked before everybody to bleed out, eventually suffocate, and die. Now, you tell me how... How much confidence would you have the next day to say, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine? After witnessing that, moment after moment, hour after hour, sitting there watching this, somebody stop this. This man didn't do anything. He's done nothing. Somebody stop this. And then disciples come and say, hey, we saw him. How would you respond? Doubting you? (laughs) Put your name in there. I have been in the presence of many people over the last six years in their grief. Grief is is a profound emotion. It, It has a strength to it. It has a debilitating aspect to it. And so for Thomas to say, unless I see those wounds, unless I actually touch the wounds, unless I put my hand in that wound, I... Guys, I'm not, I'm not playing games. I, I just can't believe. I'll never believe. And so if you look down at your Bibles, it says, verse 22, So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So he lays down his conditions, if you will, or the criteria. I've got to see this or I just can't. If that doesn't happen, there's no way that I could believe. There's no way. Now, I find it fascinating. If you drop down, it says, eight days later. So, I want you to look between that statement, I will never believe, and then the next statement, eight days later. Do you see what's between those two? I don't either. I'm very, very curious what eight days were filled with, what eight days looked like, what What was on the man's mind? What was going on in the minds of the disciples as they had seen this? Apparently, Thomas has not seen the Lord Jesus in this time. He's going to reveal himself soon in this passage. But in that eight days, nothing. What kind of struggle? What kind of grief? Um, It's interesting when somebody loses a loved one, uh, tragically, there's something to the mind where they just can't believe it. It just doesn't sink in. It just... I I can't believe that. And over time, day after day after day, it sinks in more and more and more and becomes a stronger and stronger reality. And so here's Thomas after eight days. I would think it had set in quite well. He's dead. 
I'm not going to see him again. I know what the disciples said. I know they believe it. I know how strongly they believe it. I know what's going on, but he's dead. Now, it's interesting to me in this passage, eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And I I asked that question. Maybe you're curious about that. What's he still doing with them? What's Thomas doing with the disciples? Why is this still the the band of people that he's traveling with? Why is he in there? What's going on? And there's numerous things you could come up with, um, and uh, probably all bits and pieces to it. Perhaps there is still a faith in him, I believe there is, where he's still struggling with the circumstances in front of him. But also, beloved, don't, don't forget, for, many, for a few years now, these are his people. This is his family. This is all he knows. Where else are you going to go? Not only that, everybody saw you with the guy they just murdered. You best stick together. I don't know exactly all the motives in Thomas's heart, why he continued with the disciples. I'm not surprised that he did, but it's just fascinating to me that here he is in a locked room with the disciples. I have no doubt they're discussing the circumstances of what's taken place, of what is taking place. They're gathering in prayer, probably confused a little bit, trying to figure out what is next. The other disciples, no doubt, have seen him, believe that he's alive and well. But here's Thomas really wrestling, really struggling. He's made his statement to his brothers, unless I see him and touch him, I can't go along with what you're telling me, fellas. I just cannot go along with what you're telling me. And so the bottom line, if Thomas does not see or touch the physical evidence of the resurrected Christ, he will never believe that he rose from the dead. So the criteria laid, conditions set in front of everybody, and he said it nice and loud so everybody knows, unless that happens, I'm out. If Thomas does not see it, he's out. And now let's look how Jesus fully satisfies this criteria. He not only satisfies, but he astounds in what he does here. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, there's lots of folks that like to run around here and say, This is his resurrected body, so he went through doors. Probably, possibly. Some folks say he was in there before they ever got in there. There's, there's lots of things where theologians, they're bored, right? Theologians are bored, so they have to find stuff to debate and wrestle over together. And so this is, this is one thing that they come and wrestle over. With that, I, it's, it's interesting to me because I go, well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me that our Lord in his resurrected state can go where he pleases. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. He's the sovereign king. Yeah, he does whatever he wants. And so... I'm satisfied with reality that he got in there the way he chose to get in there. Done. Now, the fact that he's in there is what I really want to hone in on. So here's Thomas. Here's the disciples. I have no doubt they're discussing, they're praying, they're working through things. And the Lord Jesus Christ appears. And I don't want this to be missed, beloved, as simply a, um, as a, as a greeting. Peace be with you. 
because it's not. It's not like me coming to your home and saying, hey, it's far grander than that because of the individual who's saying this. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Scripture that nothing was made that was made apart from him. We're told that he is supreme over all things. And this is the one that gives the declaration, peace be with you. Beloved, don't miss it that there is no other person that can declare peace in the life of somebody apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating when people in our, in our culture will say, and other cultures will say, all I want is a little bit of peace and quiet. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. This is a deep-seated peace of the soul. The shalom, the, the, the absolute, full, satisfying presence of God in our life. The fact that we're at peace with the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not live in the fear of God in the sense of judgment and damnation coming our way. The Lord Jesus declares, peace be unto you. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, meaning if you have faith in the Lord Jesus, you are a disciple of Christ, if you are in him, then beloved, his peace is on you. You are at peace with Almighty God. It's interesting how often we, we strive to be at peace with men and so little attention is given to be at peace with God. How we could care more about what other people think about us than what God thinks is insanity. And so as Jesus comes in and declares, peace be with you. Now, if this was a movie, and this was, you know, we're we're watching a film here, this would be one of the climaxes of it. I think there's a handful of climaxes in this passage, but this would be a climax where the eyes of our Savior turn to Thomas. Now, I just wonder, you know, what did the other disciples do? Did they all go, oh, because they all saw him, they all know, and they also know what Thomas has said. And apparently Jesus knows exactly what he said. Jesus knows everything, so why would he not know that? But then it's like different camera angles, different perspectives. I see it from Jesus' perspective. Then I see it from the disciples' perspective. But then I want to see it from Thomas' perspective as those eyes of the resurrected Christ stare into his eyes. And that doubt just, just melts. It's just gone. As he stands before the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King, the Savior, the Master. But also, the shepherd. Yeah, high and lofty. I mean, beloved, I, I don't have the words to wrap around what I'm trying to communicate about the glory of Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing sticks, nothing's good enough for him. So there he is, and that magnificent one directs attention to one single man. I 
undivided attention from God to one man. What kind of God is this? To, to have supremacy over all things, who calls all things into existence by the word of his power, by the word of his mouth, he calls it into. It doesn't exist, then it exists. That very one gives his undivided attention to Thomas. It's astounding what's happening in this moment. And he says, put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I have zero doubts. Tears are going down the man's cheeks at this moment. That the risen Savior has just called him on his criteria. Remember that, Thomas, what you told the guys earlier? There you go. Here, here you go, come here. Now, the passage does not necessarily say that he did it, but I like how one commentator said, I don't think he had a choice. Because <laughs> his criteria became the commands, and if you put on a piece of paper the criteria set by Thomas and the commands of Christ, identical, precision. Thomas, I know what you said, and I know how you're wrestling, I know how you're struggling, I know what's going on in your heart. I'm God. I know. So come on. Beloved, the the holiness and the tenderness mingled in our God is is breathtaking. It's phenomenal. Because usually when somebody is that vast and glorious, I'm saying among men, a king or whatnot, usually they don't have a whole lot of time for boring, mere people such as ourselves. But the sovereign of the universe says, come here and touch my hands and touch my side, Thomas. Quit doubting. Don't disbelieve. Believe. I believe Thomas did. I believe Thomas was astounded because Thomas makes one of the most profound statements regarding the deity of Jesus Christ in your Bible. Thomas answered him, my Lord, which he's been. Up to this point, Jesus has been his Lord. He's the one he's following. He's the one he's serving. He's the one that that he wants to be his, his disciple. But then he says, my God. And Jesus doesn't say, whoa, now don't go too far there, Thomas. I'm not God I, you know, I'm, I'm just a good man. I, I'm just a good leader. I'm, you know, as, as in Revelation goes to the angel, they say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Just like the apostles, and they say, no, we're mere men like you. Don't worship us. Don't do Jesus receives all the glory and worship from this man. You better believe I'm your Lord and your God. The deity of Jesus Christ has been attacked from every angle throughout church history, and yet, beloved, it is crystal clear from every page of the New Testament that Jesus Christ is God. And here's Thomas heralding from the housetop, you are my Lord and you are my God. Now, if it said the end after that, that's pretty sweet. But it doesn't. 
There's more. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This does not diminish Thomas's faith. And I want to make sure that I make this clear. He's not saying, therefore, Thomas, your faith is not real. Your faith is not genuine. Your faith is not good. He's not saying that. There's not a diminishing of Thomas's faith. But he's teaching a very important principle. He's giving a beatitude here, a blessing. There's a particular blessing that Jesus Christ is declaring here. There's a particular blessing for those with faith apart from the sight that Thomas has just seen. Now, I want to touch on a point really quick that um, has just been on my mind a bit. Okay, so I'm taking a little bit of a sidestep, then we'll jump right back into the text. It's always been fascinating to me as a Christian in the, in the church of Jesus Christ when I hear somebody say, if only somebody saw such and such, then they would believe. If only we could get somebody who's a celebrity in the minds of this world to come and share their testimony, then we'd get people more saved or more people saved. If only we could, we could get this, then we can make it happen. And all these strategies of church growth movements and church growth conferences and all of these things where if you can get this done, you'll get them saved. Beloved, I want to remind you that nobody gets saved apart from the miraculous work of the Spirit of God in the life of the person. Our designs and our methods are not the trick to finally get somebody to be born again. Can I give you just a couple references in Scripture what would cause me to say that? Did you re- have you realized in the reading of your New Testament, after Lazarus was risen from the dead, they threatened to hurt him? We'll kill you. I know, I already did that. <laughs> but the one that strikes me the most is that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ denied it publicly for money's sake. The guards saw him resurrected and ran and told, and they were bought off. And you go, whoa, so you're telling me they saw a resurrection and they still didn't believe? That's what I'm telling you. Lazarus and the rich man, where he says, go tell my family, if they see that your man came back from the dead, they'll believe. He says, no, they won't. They have Abraham, they have um, Moses and the prophets, and with those, they, those will suffice. They will believe on the truth. And so this, this concept of, man, okay, so uh, Thomas believed, and so therefore, all we got to do is show people miracles, and then they'll believe, then we'll have people saved. Beloved, I would just encourage you to read through your New Testament, see how many people saw the miracles of Jesus Christ, and then you know what they did? They yelled out, crucify him. So apparently not. Which we know that, theologically, nobody is born again apart from the work of the Spirit. It's not our methodology, and I'm not arguing, therefore, we don't evangelize, that we don't do that. Don't, Don't read that into that, please. It's not what I'm arguing by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying, let's remember, this is a miraculous work when somebody's born again by the Spirit. 
And so I believe Thomas believed. And by God's grace, the method in which the Lord brought Thomas to himself was a direct confrontation and the physical evidence in front of his eyes. But then our Savior says, but blessed are those who don't see that. Blessed are those who don't get that. I've never seen Jesus Christ. I've never seen a resurrected Christ. I've never put my hands in his hands or in his side. You know how many martyrs have never once touched the physical body of Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus, and have died in faith and belief on him? So apparently, faith is not by sight, but rather faith is by a miraculous work of the Lord in the heart of men and women. So let us be very careful when we make those statements. If only they saw this, then we'd get them. No, it doesn't work like that. We are dependent on the Lord to accomplish this great task. And so it's kind of fascinating, not kind of, it is fascinating to me to contemplate the reality that there's a blessing called by Christ on every one of us in this room who are truly saved. Blessed are you, you have not seen and believe. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. Roger got close, but he didn't go where I'm going. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Now listen to this, beloved. Just listen to this passage. It is, it is so stimulating to think of what the apostle is saying here. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, please don't let that pass too quickly, the the genuineness of your faith that has been tested is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, back to those trials, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here you go, guys, for you and for me this morning. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And go to Hebrews chapter 11, just a few pages back in my Bible anyway. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, The conviction of things not seen. That's why it's interesting to me sometimes in in certain circles, you'll hear it called a faith movement. And yet in that faith movement, all they talk about is miraculous signs and wonders that they can see with their physical eyes. In this passage, it tells us faith is what is there when you do not see. Now, turn with me also to 1 John. Again, a few pages the other way. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 
And I pray the Spirit of God would just embed this in our hearts. 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now listen to this, you guys. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Wow. You know how many other things have taken the place of that in people's definitions of how we overcome the world? Warfare, politics, fill it, you go ahead, fill it up with all the other things that get chased after. No, the Bible, the inspired, inerrant Word of God says this is how we've overcome the world. By our faith. This, one is, this passage is very personal to me. Uh, years ago, I was having a very deep struggle with some doubt about the Lord, about His Word. And that passage rushed to my rescue. The very fact you have faith is a testimony of the power and presence and majesty of God. Why are you here this morning? Why is that book opened on your lap? Why do you have little markings inside that book? Why do you spend time in prayer? Do you recognize, beloved, if you are a Christian, you are a miracle? As Raj said, you take this as your pastor who loves you with all of his heart. You're weirdos. Because to this world, you make zero sense that you'd spend your time and your money on all this. That you'd give your life to this. Your faith is a wonder to this watching world. You make no sense. The deeper you get in your faith, the stronger you walk with Christ, the more you make no sense to this watching world. And by God's grace, at times, the world goes, I just got to know, why are you so the way you are? And he gives you a beautiful platform to pour it out. Back to John 20. John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31 that Brother Mark read for us this morning is a capstone of the whole book of John. I realize there's a whole other chapter, but this, this really lays this out. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I I look forward to heaven because I think there's another book or at least there's going to be some explaining of all this other stuff that he's done. I I hope. I'd love to hear more of what our our dear Savior did. I'd love to hear about some more of the conversations between him and the disciples. Maybe some other sermons he preached. Maybe some other people he healed. I want to hear more. I want to hear more. So we're told here there's a lot more that he did that are not written in this book. But what you have in your hands... John's gospel, but these are written so that you may believe. Believe what? Remember, when people say I'm a person of faith, faith in what? There must be an object. You don't just believe in believing. I've heard somebody say that. That just doesn't make any sense. Or I have faith in faith or something of that nature. That just is a tailspin. No, what's the, what's the purpose? Faith in what? It says that you may believe that Jesus is 
the anointed one, the exalted one, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The purpose of this book is for you to read this book, hear what has been done, see Jesus Christ for who He is, and on the words of the apostles, the the writing of what has taken place, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a little NIV, I think it was when I was a kid. I had my parents, I had my pastors, I had people showing me this precious truth. And by the Word of God, I was born again. As the Word and the Spirit mingled in Dan Mason's little seven-year-old heart, I was born again unto God. The Scripture speaks, and this is what I think is so fascinating. I might have gone too fast. Go back to verse 31. But these are written so that you... Who's the you? It's a pretty expansive you. Original readers of this? Sure. All the readers of this? Absolutely. Beloved, all the way down to 2022 in this building right now, this is written in order that you may believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the glorious, resurrected Savior. So let me land the plane, and then I'll buy you all a cup of coffee. Thomas was confronted by the resurrected Christ. What we see in this last verse, verse 31, is that we have been two. Through his word, we see he is still alive. And he is in power. Matthew 28 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. We're told that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Not not wringing his hands, standing by the Father, seated. Why do you sit? Because your job's done. And because you are now ruling and reigning. And so Christ is seated in power. And Thomas, when he was confronted by the living Christ, surrendered. My Lord and my God. Beloved, I got to ask you, is is that where you're at? Have 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 you surrendered before him? Is he yours? Are you his? Oh, my Lord and my God. The fact that he has personally sought you out and made you his. It's so funny, isn't it? In our culture, we have this whole celebrity concept where we go and there's somebody who's speaking or there's somebody who's an athletic person or something and somebody goes, they touched my hand. Or I have a card signed by Michael Jordan. Who cares? The sovereign of the universe who called all creation into existence has said, you are my son and my daughter. Talk about celebrity status. 
that you are in the presence of the living God purchased by his precious blood. If, not, if there's anything that humbles us as a species, as a people group of humans, that should. There are no celebrities but one. There is no one worthy of glory but one. There is no one that is on a pedestal but one. All we are sheep who've gone astray. All we are dead men who need spiritual resurrection. So, beloved, I just call you one thing, just one simple thing. I call you to rejoice this morning. If that's you, that's your inheritance, you're in Jesus right now, sing it from the housetops. That it should flood our souls with exhilaration. But if right now in this moment you've got this rumbling in your heart, you're uncomfortable, not because the chairs are uncomfy, but you're, you're uncomfortable, there's something not right, something's off, and deep in your heart you think, I don't know him. I don't know him. I know all about him, but I don't know him. He's Lord and God, but he's not my Lord and God. I plead with you, cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Rush to him. Today's a day of salvation. Move. Ask ask of him. God, if this isn't real, make it clear. Just rush to the Lord. If God would, in that moment, so precisely zone in on the face of Thomas, then, beloved, why on earth would you think he wouldn't do that with you right now? You've been confronted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive and well. There's a ton of proofs over the years I've given that. I didn't want to do that this Sunday, but there's a a ton of proofs that show this is fact. He's resurrected. You are confronted by that. And you are not allowed... Not by me, I'm not talking about my authority. You are not allowed to ignore him. He is either your Lord and Master, or you await judgment. But there is no in-between. So if you know right this moment you're stiff-arming God, you're going to lose. And I pray, drop that arm. And may the Spirit of God do the miracle of the new birth. Let's let's pray.